John chapter 10, everybody. John chapter 10. We're making our way through the Gospel of John all through the spring and into this summer. John's historical theological biography of Jesus of Nazareth, the most important figure in all of history, in all of time, in all of space. We find ourselves in a very unique moment in human history. Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls ours, he calls this time, a secular age of exclusive humanism. It's big philosophical terminology. A secular age of exclusive humanism. Exclusive humanism is a way of being in the world that locates the deepest sources of meaning with reference only to human life rather than with reference to some reality outside of human life. Does that make sense? So think with me. Only four or five generations ago, it was just a given. You were born into a world and into a worldview where obviously there was a God. And obviously this world operated according to that God's spiritual norms. Today, though, Taylor says that we as a culture, we are content with the eminent, that is what is present, and we give little thought to the transcendent, that which is outside of us, beyond us, in the mystery. Belief in an all-authoritative God who has intent for every human in our culture is at best ignored and at worst opposed as uninformed, unscientific, and in extreme cases, it's even considered dangerous. Too much radicalization happening with such beliefs. Now, despite this, we need to understand that our society has not done away with faith and religious zeal. All we've done is we've relocated the center of gravity of our faith from God and spirituality onto ourselves exclusively. Exclusive humanism trusts in the human agent as the ultimate arbiter of truth. Trusts in the human agent as the designer of life and meaning. And so this tectonic shift from a spiritual and God-centered worldview to a physical and self-centered worldview, it has shifted almost every single facet of how we go about defining the good life, finding the good life, and living the good life. Let me just give you guys a couple examples. I was gone last weekend. I was leveling up my CrossFit certifications. It was a blast. I had a lot of fun. Thank you for letting me go do those types of things. But I was reminded while I was there in this community of professional elite fitness people that there is a whole religious church of people that are committed to what I call salvation by sweat and nutrition. <laughs> it's a gospel that literally forms their identity in their lives. Now, of course, I'm a hobby fitness enthusiast. It's good for us to eat right and to work out. But there are entire communities of people that make working out and eating their macros perfectly every day a sense of their identity and their primary path to salvation. So goes the gospel. If I follow this particular nutrition plan and subscribe to this specific exercise protocol, I will then look this way. Think six-pack abs, lean, muscular. And I will feel this way on the inside, fulfilled and valued. And then I will have the abundant life. <laughs> Yet no matter how much kale we eat and how intensely we keep our heart rate up, it all falls apart at some point because, honestly, donuts are just too darn delicious. And we can only run from the grave for so long before every single one of us are going to fall headlong into it. 
Here's another one. I find this one super intriguing because I'm caught up in it very, very deeply. Self-care. Self-care is another example of the influence of exclusive humanism. What? Why? The principle, the principle of exclusive humanism is actually wrapped up right in the name self-care. We, the self, take responsibility to care for ourselves. The center of gravity is the self. Now again, there is nothing inherently wrong with taking care of ourselves. But in an exclusively humanistic framework, self-care becomes our only source of hope and salvation from the mess that is the human experience. And so goes the gospel. We need to be mindful enough. We need to find the right therapist. We need to, divide, we need to develop the right balance of work and play, find and read the right books, get our mental health in order, eat right, breathe right, sleep right, use better life hacks, and productivity optimization apps. Then finally, <laughs> we're going to be living the abundant life. Finally, we'll get it as we care for ourselves. In contrast... Jesus of Nazareth, he is the most compelling, wise, jarring, offensive sage that has ever existed in any age because Jesus did not shy away from the truth of the deliciousness of donuts <laughs> and the human experience in that he did not ignore that we are frail. He did not ignore our inability, and he oftentimes did not ignore even our dare I say it, sheer stupidity. <laughs> Nowhere is this more clearly seen than right here in John chapter 10 with this sheep-shepherd imagery, the sheep-shepherd imagery. Sheep, for those of you that are just city folk, sheep are powerless animals. They are, oh man, I cannot even describe to you how dumb sheep can be. Sheep, sheep will walk themselves into totally dangerous, destructive situations, and they will follow one right after another into these situations where they are going to die if they're not imminently watched over. Sheep cannot find their own food. They cannot protect themselves. And so this likening of humans, us, to helpless, sometimes dumb animals, it stands in complete contrast to the exclusive humanism that is shaping our society in this cultural moment. And Jesus says unequivocally that we are unable to save ourselves, much less create and engineer the life that we all want. And this was at the very epicenter. It was at the core of Jesus' teachings. What Jesus intended to do was return his human creation back to reality to help us to cease self-engineering the abundant life and to begin to just receive the abundant life from him. John 10, verse 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so as the good shepherd, the way that Jesus did that here in John chapter 10 was he said, I'm going to warn you of what won't give you the good life. I'm going to speak to you about how to find and receive the good life, and then I'm going to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Jesus warns. Jesus speaks, and Jesus does for us what we can't do for ourselves. He warns, he speaks, and he does for us what we can't do for ourselves. First, the good shepherd warns. Don't miss this. All the warm, cuddly feelings we get from reading John 10, I'm the good shepherd. I love you. Listen to my voice. All of those things that give us the good feel-goods, they're actually in the, in the context of a corrective teaching. 
Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees at this point. John 10, verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees. The Pharisees, they were a religious sect of Judaism, ancient Judaism, and they had over time developed this self-focused system of salvation where the priority of responsibility for their salvation was on their own ability to keep their strict moral codes. Theirs, the Pharisees, was a religious self-salvation program, whereas us, in our cultural moment, with exclusive humanism, ours is a secular self-salvation program. And so to make his point, what Jesus did is he loosely mixed these metaphors, saying, I am the shepherd, your sheep. And he also said, I am the gate. I am the way in to the place where the sheep will find provision and safety and contentment. And so what Jesus does is he warns religious Pharisees, you can't save yourself. And he warns our society, secular Pharisees, you can't save yourself. And he warns of two specific things. Number one, he warns that there is only one way into the abundant life. John 10, verse 7 and 9. Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The abundant life only begins by entering through Jesus alone. There are no other entrance points. The exclusivity of Jesus' claims, he's correcting our assumptions that we determine how we get the life that we want. In four simple words, I am the gate. He deconstructs the humanistic notion that we pick whichever path fits our preference and that will lead to flourishing. Jesus explicitly states, now hear this, he explicitly states that the good life that we are longing for apart from him does not exist. (laughs) That is jarring. Because we swim in this aquarium of self-salvation by sweat and nutrition and app optimization and life hacks. When Jesus comes and he says, I am the only way into the good life. If that exclusive humanism has still got grips on our souls, we find ourselves just utterly astonished at Jesus. This guy is so audacious. What? The only way? We're going to be offended. We'll be thinking to ourselves, there's no way he could possibly mean what I think he just said. That's just too extreme. And for many, we'll begin to question. That doesn't seem very loving, Jesus, by my definition. (laughs) You make a very exclusive claim that the only way into the good life, the true life, is through you. That just, that's not the way I would do it. This is the way that exclusive humanism approaches and is offended by the teachings of Jesus. But I can tell you this, on the other hand, If you have taken some knocks on the head through life and you've tried to walk through every metaphorical gate that you can find, sweat, nutrition, human optimization, relationships, you've pushed through every door that you could possibly push through to finally find the good life and you've still found yourself lacking and wanting and longing for provision, then when you hear Jesus' warnings that he's the only way, you actually fall at his feet and receive his warning as a rescue from the drowning that we've been living in. Number two... He warns that there are robbers and thieves trying to destroy this life. These robbers and thieves, they come in the forms of satanic lies, temptations from our own desires, and false teachers. Robbers and thieves, satanic lies, there goes our tents. 
They're going to fly away. Nice catch, Katie. (laughs) Satanic lies, our own fallen desires and false teachers. So Satan comes and he lies to us. He deceives us. He says, God's holding out on you. There are better ways for you to find flourishing in this life apart from obedience to Jesus. And then we have our sin within us, our fallen desires that are misplaced and deformed and misaligned. And then we have the enticements of the world and our society around us. And all of these things are thieves and robbers trying to take us from devotion to Jesus and obedience. And so false teachers come and they say, did God really say? False teachers and the lies of Satan and our own sinful desires say, surely you won't die if you go this way with your life. It's these inward disordered desires and these outward deniers of truth. They dismantle the authority of God's words to us. And they teach us to make God's will fit into our own will. Now, sometimes these thieves and robbers, they're very clear within the church. We can talk about the sexual ethic of Jesus, his extreme sexual ethic, and how we need to try to fit oftentimes his sexual ethic to fit kind of our sexual ethic because it makes more sense to us even though it's robbing us of the joy of what human sexuality is in the eyes of God. But oftentimes within the Christian community, these thievers, these thievers, these thievers and robs, <laughs> these robbers and thieves, oh, the plight of public communication, it's the best. These thieves and these robbers can be so subtle. Let me give you an example from our own church community. Here at Neighbors Church, we have three values. We want to live into simplicity reducing the clutter of our lives. We want to live out of stillness, stillness of heart, stillness of mind, stillness of soul. And we want to live under the anointing and guidance and power of the Spirit. Simplicity, stillness, and spirit. And yet, if you are like me, value number two, stillness, <laughs> I, we struggle. I struggle, bus, man, to actually keep a legitimate Sabbath Sunday after Sunday, or for us, Saturday after Saturday, where I legit shut down and become still before my God. We struggle. We run at this unmanageable pace, and then we find ourselves ragged with school and work. And it's not that we don't value stillness. We all say, stillness, that sounds so nice, so good. But the pull from our fallen desires and satanic lies in the world, and then the gurus of your best life now, and and our self-defined vision of success that's not grounded in Jesus, it constantly robs us of the life that he intends us to live out of rest as a state of existence. Thieves. And so... These false teachers and lies and deceptive desires, they all say seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and identity management. That is the means to your fulfillment. Jesus says, work for the kingdom for six days out of my strength and then shut it down for a full day of Sabbath. Legit, shut it down, become still. Jesus says, be still and trust that I am the one managing your identity. You're my son, you're my daughter. Jesus says, take my easy yoke and the light burden upon yourself and learn to be unseen by the world, but at rest in my loving gaze. You see, subtle. And you could, you could mark these, these thieves and robbers in almost every facet of our lives as Christians. We have to be so aware. Second, if he warns to give us the good life, second, he speaks about the good life, the abundant life. John 10, verses 2 through 3. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. 
The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Guys, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I'm actually blown away by this. And the longer I study different religions from New Age to all the major religions of the world to secular humanism, actually, it's hard to overemphasize how amazing this is. God actually communicates with us, his people. He speaks to us. For us as Christians, at the apex of Jesus' speaking modes is the Bible. We are a Bible and spirit church, word and spirit. The Bible is at our center. We hear God's voice most clearly through the scriptures. Jesus also, though, speaks through creation. He says, I love you through the soft sunlight filtering through these tents this morning. He speaks to us through our community, the friends and family that God puts around us in this interconnected network of relationships. And he speaks through our consciences, the emotional profiles of our lives, that sense of right and wrong, the ups and downs, the depressions and the joys. These are all points and places of God's voice in our lives. I came across this term. Are you guys familiar with this term at all? Have you, how many of you ever heard of the term prosody? Prosody. Anybody? Okay, good. We all get to learn a new word today. Prosody. When we speak... When, when we're talking with each other, we actually have layers of intonation, and there's rhythm, and there's pattern, and there's up and down volume and pitch and all this, and then there's way down quiet volume and pitch. Very subtle, very extreme. All of these things create more meaning in our language. This is called the prosody of voice, the prosody of voice. Let me give you an example. I could say, you should all get in a community. Or I could say, you should all get in a community. Or I could say, you should all get in a community. Did you hear all of those? Like whoever's listening on the podcast right now, they just got three very different meanings and sense of like, whoa, whoa, oh, whoa, I'm scared. Oh, yeah, I should get in. Did everybody get that? Prosody of voice. Okay. Jesus, as he speaks, he speaks to us with all sorts of tones. Some of those tones are corrective. They can even feel harsh and scary. Some of those tones, that prosody of voice, are comforting and delightful. And so the process of Christianity, of apprenticeship under Jesus, is learning his voice, the tones, the volume pitches, the silence. And it is a lifelong process. I can remember being a brand new Christian. I had never read the Bible in my entire life. I'd never even been in a church when I first became a Christian. And all this, honestly, I still think the church is weird. But back then I was like, what have I gotten myself into? But I do remember opening up the Bible and reading. And it just felt like God was just shouting. And I had no clue what I was reading. I was like, what is a Thessalonian? It's amazing, whatever it is. I love Thessalonians. It was so good. I remember discovering that there were four guys that had written about Jesus. I thought I was the smartest Bible scholar in the world. I literally was going to all the college group kids just tell them, did, did you guys know there were four guys that wrote about Jesus? The Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four of them. That's insane. It's because Jesus was just like shouting to this baby Christian his comfort and his joy of these texts. Then began this many years long process that I'm still in of learning the overarching theology of the Bible, the interconnectivity of the story, learning context, learning to read carefully, then learning to meditate deeply and let those words go deep down in. Then came those long seasons of deep dryness and just developing the discipline to listen to 
God's voice in the Bible, even when the words aren't leaping off the page. And you're like, I have no clue what Leviticus means. I'm just going to listen to it. Creation, when I first became a Christian, absolutely overwhelmed me. I was always an outdoorsy guy, backcountry skier guy, all that stuff. But there was something after I became a Christian where the blue in the sky was just shouting his power and his wisdom and his beauty. And it still does 20 years later sometimes. It was like I could hear him. A sun would set and I could just hear him saying, I'm bigger than you and I'm wise. And look how beautiful I make this creation. And honestly, I was shocked that I had a conscience after I became a Christian. Whereas before I was a Christian, there were things that I would do that I wouldn't even think twice about. And then I would begin to think about those things, doing those things as a Christian. I'd be like, oh, 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 what is that? Oh, my gosh, I don't, I don't that feels wrong to me. What, what is wrong with me? God's voice, learning the intonations, the tones, the correctives, the comforts, all of these moments. Finally, I was just beginning to learn to listen to the voice of Jesus in community. There was something about Christians that when I first became a Christian, I had no clue what they were talking about. I just loved listening to them. They would say things like, hallelujah. I'd be like, holy what? What does that even mean? They'd walk around, praise the Lord. Okay, great. Praise the Lord. I don't know what that means. But somehow in it, I was like, all right, whatever they're saying, Jesus likes. So I'll say it too. And then I began saying it. And it was like, I could hear what Jesus was saying to me as I would say, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And I loved listening to Christians talk. It was like Jesus was just, I always felt like, you know, like in the prayer circles and stuff, like Christians could read each other's minds because, you know, you'd have that time in the prayer circle where it would get really quiet. And then I would always be like, how do they know which one's supposed to pray next? <laughs> and then they would stumble over each other. I'm like, oh, they messed up. <laughs> I just loved it. All of it was Jesus, like just taking me in and talking to me like, I'm with you, kiddo. I love you. And I would say that over these last few years, finally, God has really brought me to a new season of life because I have learned to listen to the deafening silence of God. You know, the mystics, the contemplatives, they're a tributary of Christianity in our history. And some of them used to say that God's first language is silence. When I first read that, I was like, that's dumb. That does not make any sense. And yet now, years into my journey of learning how to slow down and be still and just let the deafening silence fall over me, there are times where his silence is so loud with love and so loud with conviction and so loud with comfort that it's almost unbearable. And I've learned to just embrace silence and dryness as part of his speech. It's prosody. It's prosody of voice up and down. Now, there are a few reasons Jesus is speaking today why we wouldn't hear him. He is speaking right now. Scriptures, creation, community, conscience. He is speaking today to you. But there are a few reasons why we may not hear him. Number one, intimacy with him is overwhelming because we feel so vulnerable. Read with me in verse 3. Notice what he says. He calls his own sheep by name. By name. In the biblical imagination... Our name is way more than what our parents gave to us when we were born. In the biblical imagination, our name represents our being, our purposes, our legacy. Jesus calls us. He knows us so intimately that his voice speaks into the deepest parts of ourselves. He speaks into those places that we've been trying to hide from and hide from others. He speaks deeply into our hidden fears. He speaks in those covered anxieties and in those carefully camouflaged insecurities. 
He speaks in our deepest desires and in the most vulnerable places we have. And so when his voice comes, it's so intimate and it's so right into the space where we are, where we're like, oh, it's a bit much. That's that's kind of unraveling me right now on the inside. I feel like I'm going to start crying right now. We have to learn again that his voice is safe, that he already knows, that he is trustworthy, whatever he says into every part of every bit of our existence in life. Number two, second reason we may not hear, and this is the hard part for us, he expects obedience when he speaks. (laughs) He expects us to follow him which means there's a surrender of our control on our part. Verse 3 again, he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. So exclusive humanism says we manifest our destiny. We are the determiners of our fate. We define, design the abundant life. Jesus says, no, you follow me. And we will remain deaf as long as we are defining for Jesus how we should be led. Let me just say that again. We will remain deaf as long as we are defining for Jesus how we think he should lead us. That's not the way it works. Sometimes I have, we are like, spiritually we're like teenagers. You know, my kids, my kids can be three rooms away. My wife and I can have a very quiet, whispery conversation about them with their name in it. And one of them for sure will hear it. What are you guys talking about? Did I hear my name? From like three rooms away. But then for some reason, they're sitting right in the dining room, right next to the kitchen. I'm like, hey, it's time to do dishes. They go like full dad with, you know, their their, uh, hearing aids turned off. They're just like oblivious. Cannot hear a single thing. Obedience unstops our ears and amplifies Jesus' voice. It may be that some of us this morning, you've been asking, Jesus, why won't you speak to me? And he's like, I have. I have told you what to do. I have told you what to do. I'm for you. I'm with you. And he's just asking you to take this defining how you should be led and say, okay, just lead me then. Just lead me. Third, third reason we may not hear, the voices of strangers are trying to drown out his voice. We can't hear his voice because of all the strangers' voicings competing with his voice. Our society is a cacophony. Cacophony is a big, big word that means tons of noise, tons of sources of noise. Our society right now is a cacophony of strong opinions screamed at each other or sent from coffee shops via social media. That's what we live in right now. And so how are we to learn to hear wisdom in a world of warring fools? How do we hear hope in the midst of just screaming cynicism? And how do we hear comfort in the midst of a culture of cancellation? Here's how. We have to learn to run from the strangers. Run from the strangers. Verse 5, would you read verse 5 with me? Jesus says about his sheep, they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Stick with me here. Because the sheep-human analogy on this recognition of truth and lie, sheep and non-sheep, the sheep-human analogy here is so true about us, and it's kind of honestly humiliating. We think that we are truth-discerning machines. But in reality, we actually just believe the things that are told us, whether they are true or not. We are hardwired psychologically to believe what we read and what we are told. Did you guys know that from within the first 10 to 15 seconds of meeting someone, so those of you that I met today, oh, please, God, I hope you liked me, because within the first 10 to 15 seconds of meeting someone, we go through this whole matrix of unconscious 
interpretive lenses, and we make a whole host of unconscious decisions about that person's trustworthiness, whether we know them at all. Without knowing someone, we unconsciously decide who they are and whether we should listen to them and trust them or not. And oftentimes, so many different points of study show this. We are wrong about what we think about people and their first impressions. We are wrong. We're just wrong. And even right now, I can just find myself saying, no, I'm not wrong. I got my gut thing. It's always right on. No, it's oftentimes wrong. You know, as we're reading through our news feeds and our Facebook posts and our Instagrams and our tweets and whatever else, we need to realize that we cannot fundamentally unthink what gets put in our brain there, whether it's true or a lie. These statements get lodged in there. And we often will read a statement and we'll think, oh, I could detect a truth here. And we actually will be believing a lie is a fact. Guys, let's be humble. The rise of conspiracy theories and false news has its effect on all of us. And if you think you've figured out every conspiracy theory and you have the bead on truth, oh man, I'm running from you. <laughs> there has to be a level of humility where we find ourselves simply saying, whoa, I am a sheep. I am a sheep. Sheep sometimes cannot discern truth from lie. It's a very humbling thing. So what are we to do as God's people? Uh, Brett McCracken, 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 sorry, he just wrote this new book, which I'm starting to work my way through, called The Wisdom Pyramid. And Brett says this. He says, a passive posture in reference to news and social media platforms is not a feasible response for Jesus followers, period. He says our, our Pavlovian addiction to our phones, meaning we've been trained to just, we're standing in line, get on the phone. We're bored, we get on the phone. We're at dinner, we get on the phone. That Pavlovian addiction to, to technology, he says it's just too strong. He says we have to actively resist the algorithms that are forming our thoughts. What he's saying and what Jesus would say to us is we have to prioritize Jesus' voice so that we are listening to our community more than to the culture. This right here, this group of people on a Wednesday night should have more influence than your, in your life than the culture around you. It really should. This community fed by the scriptures, filled with the spirit. <laughs> Kids are just having a blast this morning. <laughs> the scriptures should be filling our hearts and minds more than social media and podcasts. I've got this new thing that I'm challenging people to do. For every hour that you would spend on social media or listen to a podcast, put the Sermon on the Mount on repeat and listen to it for an hour. And just watch. Watch the fog filter. Watch real clarity come. Watch the little lies that have been lodged in there be dislodged by God's word. We learn to run from the stranger's voices. And then finally, we'll close with this and come to communion. He warns us there's only one way. There are robbers and thieves that want to constantly take the good life. He speaks to us through our conscience, through creation, through scriptures, through our community. He's always speaking. And then finally, like a good shepherd, because we can't do for ourselves, he does for us what we cannot do. The good shepherd does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Five times through this passage in John 10, Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus of Nazareth was more than a good counselor, uh, 
more than an advice giver on, on how to live your best life now, Jesus had to lay down his life to give us true life. Jesus had to absorb the robbery and the thievery of our own broken desires and the satanic lies and the wrongdoings that have led to this world's death. He had to absorb it into himself because we couldn't. We couldn't fix it. We cannot fix the world. We cannot fix ourselves. And so he did for us in his death what we couldn't do. He had to die for the religious Pharisees who couldn't save themselves by their strict moral code keeping. He had to die die for a secular society that basically dismisses him as an artifact of history. He had to die our death to give us life to the full. And guys, this life to the full, it is what you want more than anything. This is the sneaky thing about sin and Satan in our society. So convincing that the life that they are offering us is the life of flourishing and fullness when in fact, this fullness of life, if we will stop and be still and rest and receive from God, it becomes a life without lack, a life that is radically reoriented with kingdom perspectives that totally sit in contrast to this exclusive humanistic worldview of self-salvation. We learn slowly over time to live our days Not just acknowledging, oh yeah, I want to rest, but actually rest becomes a state of existence for us. Rest in the midst of all the chaos. Rest in the midst of all of the fear. Rest in the midst of all the anxiety. Our hearts become still. This is the abundant life that Jesus wants us to live in the midst of all this. We have this deep, abiding sense of meaning and purpose. We no longer need to self-define who we are. We get to receive who we are and then live into that and live out of that. And it's like what we call in sports psychology flow. You're just, you're just doing what God designed you to do. You're not wrestling. You're not striving. You just are in the moment with God, with humans, with that meaning, with that purpose. That's the full life that Jesus offers us. We learn to delight in the smallest, tiniest little things. Like how fast... A hummingbird's feathers flap. I don't even know what the technical term is. The other day, there was a hummingbird out in front of my window. I sat there and watched it for probably 10 minutes, and I was just blown away. I was like, that's genius. That's genius. That's the most genius little mode of flying. How? God speaking. And it made my whole day to just sit and watch a hummingbird for 10 minutes. It's a different different way of being. Do you see this? It's a categorically different way of living. It's something that secular humanism would say is silly. Why do you want to sit and watch a hummingbird? you got to go make your way, make your name, prosper, succeed, promotions, bigger, better, higher, faster platforms. But the saints of God say, it's all going to fall apart, and that hummingbird is incredible. I don't want to miss it. The smell of that flower, the smile on my wife's face, the laughter of my kids around the dinner table. The beauty of my family on a Sunday morning, the blue in the sky. It's a different way of living life. It's a life without lack where I don't fear, we don't fear that we will lose anything because all that is needed has been given to us. Does that mean that we have all that has been given to us will compare with what the world may have? May we stand in the eyes of the world and be seen as equal and just as valuable? No. Most Christians spent most of their lives on the margins throughout the history of our people on the margins, unseen, and impoverished. Life without lack. Full lives. 
Most of our brothers and sisters, especially in the earliest centuries of the church, their lives were so full that they just laid it all down all the way to martyrdom. This life without lack under the good shepherd, it's one where service becomes our greatest joy. To see our friend and even our foe with a genuine smile on their face that we brought to them, that becomes our deepest source of joy. And most importantly, you guys, the good shepherd leads us to live life as loved. Every single self-salvation program that we're all laboring in is an attempt to be loved. It's an attempt to have a low enough body fat percentage and to eat the right macro count to where you will be loved. It's an attempt to optimize your life and have all of the right readings and sleep right and breathe right and do right so that you will have a sense of being loved. And Jesus, the good shepherd, comes and he says, I love you so much, I lay down my life for you. And we learn to live out of that love. As sheep, this morning, as we come to communion, listen to his warning and enter the good life only through him. Where are you trying to kick down doors and find your way into some sense of identity and salvation that is not Jesus? Just turn to him. Learn to listen to his voice and flee from the strangers. This morning, rely even more deeply than you ever have on his life and on his death in your place. And most importantly, acknowledge that you can't do this. So cry out, shepherd, lead me. Shepherd, feed me. Shepherd, teach me. I can't do this. I can't even find my way to you unless you come get me. That's the compelling nature of the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. A complete demolishing of who we once thought we were to actually make us who we are. And that is where thriving and abundance comes. Receive, let go as you are led. Father, we just take time now to remember that you have done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We abandon this self-engineered pursuit of the good life and we want to learn how to receive it. Holy Spirit, we're so incapable, we can't even receive without your help. Illuminate our minds this morning. Illuminate our minds, illuminate our souls, illuminate our hearts. Before we begin to sing, would you just just let everything fall quiet right now and take, take a breath down into your belly and just become aware that you are breathing. Even your breath is God speaking to you. He gave you that breath. And let's just listen here for a moment to the sound of his voice in our city. Buses, people yelling, people on their jogs and walking, the breeze blowing the tents around, the kids having a blast. Just listen, just listen to creation for a moment, just listen. Turn your heart inward. All that emotional complexity in there, Jesus knows how to sort through it, and he speaks in it. The anxiety, fear, shame, depression. The community is surrounding you. The scriptures have been spoken. 
We'll wait on the Spirit this morning and let him lead us into a time of reflection and communion.